The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 1 and 18 to 30. It can be found on page 919 in the Black Bibles. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading that for us, Christy. And good to see all of y'all this morning. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. Welcome. If you're new here at Christ the King, we're particularly happy to have you here with us this morning. One of the things we talk a lot about at this church is this word called the gospel. And it's actually a word that the early church stole from Rome. In the first century, Rome used this word gospel, uh, which means good news. They would send evangelists um, to, to deliver news about perhaps something that had happened in a distant war. You know, if you're living in a village, you don't have email, you don't have some mail, you just don't know what's going on on the borders. And so they would send evangelists who would come and bring the good news about a victory that had been won for Rome or perhaps a, a royal birth in the family. These were the sorts of things that were brought by the evangelists. And so Christians said, well, we, actually, we have good news. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the things that really makes Christianity distinct from other religions is that we believe that fundamentally our religion is one of news. It's not advice about what you need to do to get right with God. It's not advice about how you can ascend into heaven. It's good news about what God has done to condescend to us, what he's done in his life and death and resurrection and ascension of his son, Jesus, to meet us where, where we're at and to rescue us. So as we consider this news, I want you to know, if you, maybe if you don't yet believe it, um, what this means is that all of us, all of us are on a level playing field before God. If this is like your first religious thing you've come to in a while and you're wondering, do I belong here? 
everyone here who would say, there's a, say that they're a Christian, we all believe that we're just as needy as you are. And so you're welcome here. So let me, uh, let me pray for us and ask that the Lord would help us as we spend time in his word. Lord, we give you thanks for this gospel, this good news, and we pray that you would help us now to see how much we need it and how much you've provided it by your son Jesus. Help us to see that now in, in this word that you've given to us. By the power of your spirit and spirit, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and to our minds and to our lives in the way that we live. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning's sermon title is called The So What of the Gospel. So if the gospel is true, so what does that mean? And so I'm really just going to frame two, two parts to this sermon. One, the indicatives of the gospel. And two, the imperatives of the gospel. So all the English teachers in the room just said amen. They're excited. We're talking about indicatives and imperatives. Indicative, an indicative statement, if you remember from, I don't know if it's elementary school. I probably learned it in high school. I went to school in Alabama. But... Um, Indicatives are, it's a a statement of truth. It's just a matter-of-fact sentence statement. And imperatives, then, are what you're supposed to do. It's a command. And so the indicatives of the gospel, the imperatives of the gospel. Um, To set this up, I want to tell you a story about when, uh, I guess this was like three or four years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference in Tahoe for Stanford's RUF ministry. And my... um, I took my family my, uh, with me, so our five kids, Chrissy came with me, and our good friends were going to stay with us while we were there, um, and she actually used to live with Chrissy in, in college, they were roommates. So to set up the, uh, the story, we were staying in an Airbnb in Tahoe. Uh, I had gone off with the students to speak that night, so Chrissy's with her buddy, our five kids, they're four kids. So nine kids have been put to bed. House is finally quiet. It's about nine o'clock at night. And Chrissy's sitting in a chair about right here. About where that piano is, is her friend Rachel, who's also sitting and they're just eating a snack and catching up. And about where the drum set is, is the front door of the house. And as they're just sitting there enjoying their time and visiting, all of a sudden, the front door of the house smashes open. The women let out a little yelp of startle, but then they froze when a bear walked into the house. A fully adult bear just takes about three steps into the house. Chrissy, who's sitting here, her friend Rachel can't see what's happening. She just sees Chrissy's face go, and she's the one close to the bear. She just sees Chrissy's face go white with fear, and Chrissy goes, Rachel, it's a bear. <laughs> you know, and you can like, there's a flight or flight or fight. They didn't do either of those. They just froze. So they're frozen. This bear walks in like three steps, looks to the left, looks to the right, scopes it out, and then turns around and leaves. Yeah. <laughs> and Chrissy said she just kind of waited for about 30 seconds and then just gets up and runs and shuts the door and locks it. The door, had, it was one of those doors that has like a latch that you open and the bear just kind of like whomped down on it and smashed the door open. So after that happened, they, they called us. And I didn't know if they were crying or laughing. They were kind of just hysterical. Like, there's a bear, bear, there's a bear. Yeah. Meanwhile, the bear had like somehow figured out how to get into the minivan and was rummaging around. It was crazy. But I want... I, Y'all, when that happened, I bet over the next week, I probably told 100 people the story about the bear. 
I, could, I couldn't help myself. Anytime, I mean, someone would be eating Teddy Grahams. They'd be like, ooh, bear. Uh, can, I tell you about, can I tell you about what happened with this bear? You know, just anything that was going on that had anything to do with bear, I had to insert the story. Because it was incredible. It was this crazy story. And that's kind of what's happening in the early church. This unbelievable thing has happened. And they kind of just can't help themselves. Wherever they go, they're just, they're just telling people that they've seen the resurrected Jesus. That many of them are eyewitnesses to a man who had died standing before them alive again. That they were eyewitnesses to him ascending into heaven. And they just, they couldn't help themselves. And so what happened in the first century is after, particularly as we see in this passage, after Stephen's uh, martyrdom, the church dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And as they did so, they couldn't stop talking about their bear story. They couldn't stop talking about what had happened in their life with Jesus. And so what they would do is they would show up in a new town and they would go to the Jewish synagogue because the people in the Jewish synagogue had a category for what was happening. They would show up and, be, and open up the Old Testament scriptures and talk about this messianic figure that's all throughout the Old Testament and about how Jesus fulfills this, these messianic prophecies that he is the Messiah. But here in this passage, something quite different happens. It's the first time that we see this, that Christians show up in Antioch and they don't just go straight to the synagogues. Instead, they just tell some Gentiles. And I want you to imagine it because the Gentiles who are in Antioch see a, uh, a, a group of folks. Some of them are from Cyrene, which would have been from northern Africa. So they see some Africans, and then they see some people who are like island folk who live in an island just off in, in, the, in the Mediterranean. And they see them walk into their city. These people who don't belong together are somehow together, and they're telling them this news in Antioch about Jesus. And Antioch would have been this very cosmopolitan city. It was called the Queen of the East. It had tons of wealthy, educated culture makers, very diverse. People from India, China, Africa, all living there in Africa, so, or in Antioch. So it was this very strategic city that God sends these diverse preachers into, which I, you know what my favorite, one of my favorite parts about it? We don't know their names. They were not famous. These are just people who had experienced they experienced the news of Jesus and they couldn't help themselves. And so what they do is they show up and the folks in Antioch wouldn't have had the categories, this, these messianic categories. So instead they apply the gospel to where these people in Antioch are. What they did have a category for was what a Lord is. So instead of preaching Jesus as Messiah, it says they preach Jesus, verse 20, they preach the Lord Jesus. Now that would have sounded really um, provocative. Because you know who the Lord was? Caesar. They would have, whenever they were saying their allegiance to Caesar, they would have said, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. But here come these Christians and they say, actually, no, actually, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, it changes everything. See, 
when you said Caesar is Lord, you're saying Caesar, Caesar is sovereign. Caesar can do what he wishes in my life. Caesar has authority over me. Caesar is the one to be feared. And they say, no, 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 there's a different Lord. There's a different political sovereign. There's a different world power. So don't bend your knee to this weak power. There's a much greater power. Don't fear, don't fear this weaker power. It'd be like when that bear crashed into the room, if a moth had landed near Chrissy and she was like, ooh, a bug. Like you don't get scared about a bug when there's a bear in the room. And you don't get scared about Caesar when Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's what they're saying. But the, the reality for all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we treat a lot of other things like they are Lord's in our lives. We fear many other things rather than fearing God, which the scriptures tell us is actually the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. But instead, we fear things, things like, I must optimize my kid's life. What will happen if I don't? What will happen if I don't use every resource at my ability to give them all the training they need, all the tutoring they need? I don't care if I have to drive them all over the city, put them in in tons of extracurricular activities. I need to optimize my child's life. We're afraid of not doing that, are we not? And yet, ironically, um, counselors that I've, I've heard talking about this, they say anxiety and depression is skyrocketing with kids, particularly, particularly kids who feel pressure to be high achievers like their parents. They start, what happens is these children start fearing the same Lord that their parents fear. And the problem is, it's a merciless Lord. The Lord of optimizing your life to the max, reaching your fullest potential, no matter the cost, in whatever field, that Lord actually can be quite merciless. Or perhaps we fear people's, rather than, rather than that being your Lord, perhaps people's opinions are your Lord. You know, if someone's opinion about you is, is your Lord, you'll do anything it takes to make people happy. You'll spend an, you'll spend an embarrassing amount, this is I'm speaking out of, this is personal experience, you'll spend an embarrassing amount of time trying to think of just the right caption for an Instagram post if you care deeply about people's opinions about you. Get that pun just right. Think a, a lot, or maybe you'll think, maybe you'll spend an embarrassing amount of time thinking about what you wear, or maybe you'll lie about how much you go hunting. Or maybe you'll lie about what music you like or how well you know the person that someone just asked if you knew them. Or we'll smile and say we're okay when we're actually not. The problem with this Lord is that it's merciless. And not only that, it's not secure, it's fluid. It's always changing, you never know where you stand. But if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, if that's the indicative truth of the gospel, Jesus is Lord, it changes everything. It means that the, that the sovereign ruler of all things, the one who has made heaven and earth, is also kind 
that he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. It means that our Lord is kind. It means that our Lord is actually full of mercy. That he says, whoever believes in the Son will have everlasting life. It means that this is our Lord. It means our Lord is alive. He can't be Lord if he's not living. If Jesus is Lord and he's alive, he's defeated death, what we most fear. And he holds out to anyone who believes in him life, no matter how sinful you are, and that's the game changer. Do you know how good this is? (laughs) What if we lived into how good that is? That not not only is he Lord of of all that's happening around us, he's actually Lord even of our very salvation. He is the Lord of salvation. Look at verse 18. How, how do the Gentiles repent? God grants it to them. God has granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. He is so Lord over all things. He is so in control of all that he doesn't leave your salvation up to you. He's too good for that. He loves you too much for that. That he actually grants you the repentance that you even need to come to him. And you can't be stopped. Like, look at this passage. God is not going to be stopped because he's the Lord of salvation. Like verse 19 talks about how there was all this persecution happening because people were trying to stop the gospel from going out and Jesus was not gonna be stopped with that. In fact, that persecution actually just made more Christians. Or look at verse 21. How was it that that these unnamed preachers had an effective ministry? The hand of the Lord was upon them. It was the Lord who was doing the work. He's the Lord. And when Barnabas shows up in verse 23... And he sees what's happening. He's heard about what's going on. Jerusalem sends Barnabas. Check it out for us. What's going on? Barnabas gets there and he doesn't say that Barnabas is glad about the preachers who've made a name for themselves. Barnabas doesn't say Barnabas is glad about the numbers that they have showing up and the momentum for their ministry. They have critical mass. Do you know what he's glad about? The grace of God. That the grace of God is at work that God is the Lord salvation, that Jesus is Lord. So then, what do we do with that? What do we do? The imperatives, imperatives of the gospel. So this is important. Because, Because we're sinful, we flip this around all the time we flip the imperative and the indicative. We get the order wrong. Jesus, and and, and God does not want us to do this. Jesus tells stories about this all the time to kind of get us to wake up to this. He tells one one of his most well-known stories, the story of the prodigal son, which probably should be called the lost sons, because it's a story about these two sons. The first is kind of this knucklehead, takes his dad's money, spends it all, and he comes back a wreck, and his father forgives him. His father displays the indicative truth that he has always loved his son, and he welcomes him in. But there's the second son 
who's so mad about it. He's so mad about it because he's been doing the imperatives his whole life. He's been getting it done. And when, his son, when, when the older brother comes and sees this party, he says, look, Father, I have been serving you all my life. All my life I've been serving you, and you haven't given me even a goat that I could go celebrate with my friends. You haven't given me any kind of celebration. His father's like, son, everything I have is yours. Indicative truth. You don't have to earn it. What are you doing? We get this so backwards so often. But the imperatives always in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, the imperatives always follow the indicative of God's grace and love for his people. So what are the imperatives that we see lived out here? Because Barnabas does show up and he's, he, he exhorts them. He, he sees the grace of God and what's the next thing he says? So he sees the indicative truth, grace of God. The next thing he says, okay, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, imperatives. So be faithful now. God has shown you grace. He's poured out his grace. So now imperatives, come on, let's be part of this. Let's remain faithful. So what do they do? How do they do this? This isn't an exhaustive list of all the imperatives, but I think there's some informative ones for us. Look at verse 25. One of the things that they do is they sit under biblical preaching. Barnabas sees all of these baby Christians and do you know what happens to baby Christians and to old Christians? We forget the gospel all the time. And the way that we're reminded of it is to sit under the teaching of God's holy word. And so Barnabas goes, and he, he doesn't get Saul to come and do like, like a weekend conference in Antioch. Saul comes and he's just there for a year. And he opens up the scriptures and he teaches them, we need the scriptures taught to us. What else do they do? Look at verse 26. They had church. They became a church. Y'all, Christians need the church. And I want you to imagine what this church looked like. Because this is the first time that the name Christians is ever used. Do you know why it's used that way? It was kind of a term of derision. It means like little Christs. Well, those little Christs scurrying around in Antioch. What are they doing in our city? You know why they call them little Christs? Because they had no other way to, to describe what unites these people. Because they, were, they crossed racial and ethnic and class barriers and boundaries. I mean, it started by someone from Africa and someone from the island nearby coming and telling them about, about Jesus. And they're just like, who are these people? What, what brings them together? I guess the only thing is, is like this Christ that they say is Lord, Christus Curios. Little Christians, little Christs, Christians. So my question to you is, <laughs> do you believe that you need this? And, and one of the things I want to double down on from what I talked about last week when we were talking about Jesus is for the outsiders, I want you to know that this church really is for all people. For, for that whole spectrum that's, that's described here in God's word because we try to preach God's word and live by God's word so that means that like, this church needs to be for, for everyone. 
And, and, and last week, actually, even after I, after I preached my sermon, two separate times, I had somebody come up to me, um, different courses of the week, come up to me and tell me, you know what, I like your sermon, but the one thing I struggle with is I've actually brought somebody who uh, felt like an outsider. In fact, they were, they were, at the time, were homeless. And I brought them to, to the church, and they kind of weren't welcomed here. Um, in fact, I don't know who it was, but, but for some reason, they, they were kind of asked that they needed to leave. And, you know, I, who knows who said what or how that happened, but we need, first off, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If that's, a, if that's ever been your experience of bringing someone here and they were not extended the welcome of God, how inconsistent of us. How inconsistent of us who have received the indicative truth of God's grace to not extend it to others. Who've ex- we who have ex- experienced the indicative truth of, God gra- of God's grace when we were an absolute mess and a wreck and still are. So I'm sorry, but also I, would, I, I want you to hear that that is not what this church family is or will be. This is a place for all people because that's what the church was and supposed to be. It's one of the ways that God, I think, grows us because the church is like one of the only, it's an organization that you're part of that you don't get to pick who's in it with you. You don't get to select who's in and who's out. In fact, the God of salvation does that. God gets to pick who's in. He's the one who's at work. And he's like way more gracious than we are. Thank the Lord. But the other thing I would tell you and I encourage you is as these people have church together is that you, you need the church. Like there is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian who's just kind of doing it on their own. In fact, in the book of Acts, if, if one of the missionaries is ever separated from someone and they're kind of alone, you know what they do? They wait until somebody else can join them and go with them. We, we have to have each other. We can't do it alone. God is not only reconciling us to himself, he's reconciling us to one another. We need each other. So if, if you've been visiting Christ the King or if you've been visiting lots of different churches, my encouragement to you is to join a church. And you know what? It's totally okay if it's not this one. Just go to a church that preaches the gospel and go there and go there faithfully and be reminded of the indicative truth of the gospel because you and I need it. We need this. So find a church and get plugged in. What else do we see happening? Look at verses 27 through 30. We see radical generosity happening in the church. They give of themselves for the good of the other. They send, they, they hear that there's this famine coming. And I love Luke, the historian. He's like, if you want to fact check me, it was during the days of Claudius. Like, just go check. And they hear that this famine is coming. And so what, what do they do? For people that they've never met before, these people in Jerusalem, they, they pull their money together and they send it back so that they can be cared for because that, that's their brothers and their sisters. They're caring for them. And I kind of imagine that's probably pretty humbling for the people in Judea who are like, man, we were like, we like started this thing and now these strangers from Antioch are sending us money because they're like taking care of us. They're experiencing the humbling love of God through their brothers and sisters. We need this. And so as you consider 
as you consider being part of this church and practicing generosity and giving of yourself, my question to you would be, how do you want to do that? How do you want to be part of that? If, if, you, uh, if you're coming to church, let's say, let's say that you're a member of this church. So this is a little family discussion for a second. If you're not part of the member, just listen to the family discussion, okay? If you're a member of this church and you show up here, do you imagine yourself as like a guest or a host? If the church is like your country club, then it feels like you're the, then you show up here as a guest. I mean, like think about what happens when you're a guest of something, when you're a part of this, like a member of this club. You show up there as a guest. What that means is like the people who are, who are, who are there on staff are there to serve you and your needs. Um, you can show up whenever you want and you can leave whenever you want. You can not show up whenever, like it's kind of up to you. Um, while you're there, you're there to have your needs met. Um, what if instead, as we live into being God's family, we imagined ourselves, members of this church, we imagined ourselves as hosts. So that when we come here, we'll, we'll think about what does a host do? What a, what a good host does is they they show up early or on time just to make sure that if, you know, if there's anyone else who's maybe a guest who's coming early, that they'll be welcomed. A host is there to extend hospitality. A host isn't there to be served, but to serve, which is literally what Jesus says he did. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Jesus, the reason that, the reason that I would invite you into imagining yourself as a host is because that's what Jesus has done for us. He's hosted us. He is the great host who welcomes us. And so if you just like practical thing, if you're sitting here, because I mean, look, we all got off of our rhythms when COVID hit and we're still kind of off of our rhythms. So maybe you're like, hey, I don't really know where to start. Just ask somebody on staff. If you want to serve or be part of what, what we're doing here, just ask someone. We'd love to get you plugged in. But you know why we do this? The reason that we do this, and I hope, man, don't leave thinking, I got to get better at the imperatives so that I can get that indicative truth. Mm-mm. The reason that we do this is because, because God has given us everything. He's even given us repentance. He's granted it to us just as he granted it to the Gentiles, and he holds us securely. I, I wasn't planning on um, closing with this, but I just got to because I love this song so much. The song that we sang earlier, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, it was written by this guy named George Matheson, and he wrote it on the day of his sister's wedding. And the reason that's significant is because George had had a really hard life up until that point. He, uh, he was this kind of rising star in the theological world. He had lots of big plans for his life. And uh, he was engaged to be married. And he became sick and began to lose his eyesight. And the doctors told him that he was going to go blind. And when he found that out, the woman that he was uh, engaged to be married to said she couldn't be married to a blind man. She left him. So he had experienced this love that had let him go. And... And then his sister took him into her home. She was taking care of him. And now, now she was leaving the home and going to be married to another man. And so on that day, he sat down and he wrote about a love that will not let him go. And that's the love that we have. And so when he says, I trace the rainbow 
through the rain. And I feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. The, we can trace the rainbow of God's covenant love in the midst of our sorrow and difficulty and hardness that he is faithful. And, and when he says the rainbow through the rain, think about the, that, that covenant sign that God put in the sky for Noah, this battle bow in the air. He says, the next, look, Noah, I'm not going to, to destroy the world for its evil by flood again. And so he puts this, this bow in the air. And the Hebrew word, it's the same word for like a bow and arrow, like a battle bow. So think about Noah looks up and he sees a battle bow. And God's saying, I'm not going to pour out my wrath in the same way for the evil of man. But where is the bow pointed? The bow is pointed into the heart of heaven. That when the next time that God is going to pour out his wrath for all that we've done, it's going to go straight into the heart of heaven, his son. And we've been given that. It's the indicative truth of the gospel. A God who doesn't let us go. He's so committed to not letting you go. And so as we rest in his indicative true love for us, let's participate in extending his love as an imperative of the gospel that we've received. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we do give you thanks uh, for the work that you are doing, um, the work that you have done in our lives, and the work that you're doing among us. And we pray that you would uh, help us in gratitude and in joy uh, because of all that you've done for us when we didn't deserve it. Help us to participate in uh, extending the same grace that we've received from you. And we may be this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.